European Heart Journal issue at a glance. Volume 36, issue 31, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Lusher. Prevention of Non-Communicable Diseases and Special Causes of Heart Failure Heart failure is an important global health problem with great socio-economic burden and outcomes that remain suboptimal. One neglected aspect of the disease process is deranged endothelium-cardiomyocyte interaction, which plays an essential role in cardiovascular homeostasis. In particular, experimental and small clinical studies strongly suggest that disturbances in the nitric oxide, NO-mediated, and neuregulin-mediated pathway contribute to the development of heart failure, particularly in those with preserved ejection fraction. These signaling pathways hold the potential as pathophysiological targets for new heart failure therapies and may aid in patient selection for future HF trials. This issue is discussed in a timely clinical review entitled Cardiac Endothelium Myocyte Interaction, Clinical Opportunities for New Heart Failure Therapies Regardless of Ejection Fraction by Gilles W. de Coilinaire from the University of Antwerp in Belgium. Heart rate is an important risk factor both in the general population and in particular in patients with heart failure. Heart rate reducing drugs such as beta blockers and the IF channel inhibitor ivabradine have beneficial effects in patients with heart failure. The significance of an elevated heart rate in heart failure, however, is complex. Even though a high heart rate is compensatory in the short term, prolonged elevation of the cardiac rhythm results in ventricular remodeling and further lowering in pump function. Furthermore, in stable coronary artery disease and ischemic cardiomyopathy, heart rate is a well-established determinant of ischemia, and its reduction is a recognized strategy for symptom relief and improved outcome. Surprisingly, and in contrast to beautiful morbidity mortality evaluation of the IF inhibitor ivabradine in patients with coronary artery disease and left ventricular dysfunction, and SHIFT, systolic heart failure treatment with the IF inhibitor ivabradine trial, in SIGNIFY, study assessing the morbidity mortality benefits of the IF inhibitor ivabradine in patients with coronary artery disease, a trial enrolling patients with stable coronary artery disease and maintained ejection fraction, ivabradine did not provide a prognostic benefit, although the results confirmed symptomatic benefit of the drug. This raises the question of whether or not heart rate under these conditions is a risk marker or merely an epiphenomenon. It therefore appeared appropriate to ask the principal investigators, Roberto Ferrari from the Ospedaliero Universitaria di Ferrara in Italy, and Kim Fox from the Royal Brompton Hospital and Imperial College London, to comment on the issue. In their current opinion manuscript entitled The Role of Heart Rate May Differ According to Pathophysiological Setting from Shift to Signify, they further discuss the impact of heart rate reduction and possible other explanations for the surprising result of their trial. To obtain an additional outside view, the editors subsequently asked John McMurray from the Western Infirmary in Glasgow to write a counter-current opinion entitled It's Beautiful We Should Be Concerned About Not Signify. Is Ivabradine less effective in ischemic compared with non-ischemic left ventricular systolic dysfunction? McMurray argues that it may be the interaction between Ivabradine and the etiology 
of left ventricular systolic dysfunction that is important, and that it is this interaction that helps explain the apparently conflicting results of beautiful shift and signify. Non-communicable diseases, among them most importantly cardiovascular conditions, have become the primary health concern for most countries around the world. Currently, more than 36 million people worldwide die from these diseases each year, accounting for 63% of annual global deaths, with most of them being preventable. The global financial burden of non-communicable diseases is staggering, with an estimated 2010 global cost of $6.3 trillion that is projected to increase to $13 trillion by 2030 in the United States alone. A number of non-communicable diseases share one or more common predisposing risk factor, all related to some degree to lifestyle, such as smoking, hypertension, hyperglycemia, dyslipidemia, obesity, physical inactivity, and poor dietary habits. In large part, prevention, control, or even reversal of the aforementioned modifiable risk factors can be realized through a healthy lifestyle. In a special article entitled Healthy Lifestyle Interventions to Combat Non-Communicable Disease, a novel non-hierarchical connectivity model for key stakeholders, a policy statement from the AHA, ESC, EACPR, and ACPM, Ross Arena from the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Applied Health Sciences presents a common policy statement from these eminent societies. According to the authors, the challenge is to determine how to initiate the global change toward true action, creating, implementing, and sustaining a healthy lifestyle, resulting in measurable changes in health metrics. To achieve this, a paradigm shift in how we approach the issue seems necessary, in particular to define stakeholders and highlight their connectivity with respect to lifestyle initiatives. It encourages integrated action by all stakeholders to achieve broad adoption of healthy lifestyles on a global scale. The statement is accompanied by an interesting piece in the CardioPulse news section of the issue. In another special article entitled The 2013 ACC-AHA Guideline on the Treatment of Blood Cholesterol to Reduce Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Risk, a new paradigm supported by more evidence, Jennifer G. Robinson from the University of Iowa College of Public Health in the United States and colleagues note that the 2013 ACC-AHA Cholesterol Guideline was a major paradigm shift and came under heavy criticism by some experts. A better understanding of the methodology used to develop the guidelines, the guideline recommendations, and the evidence supporting them addresses many of the criticisms. An extensive body of evidence from randomized clinical trials supports the new risk-based approach. The emphasis is on the appropriate intensity of statin therapy in patients most likely to benefit. The NICE guidelines have taken a similar approach. Recent studies have found the 2013 guideline outperforms earlier cholesterol guidelines recommending low-density lipoprotein cholesterol treatment thresholds and targets. If this approach changes after the introduction of the new PCSK9 inhibitors remains to be seen. An increasingly important cause of heart failure is aortic stenosis, particularly in elderly patients. Elderly and high-risk patients are increasingly treated with transarterial valve implantation, TAVI, via the femoral, and less commonly, the transapical route. While the results overall have markedly improved over the last years, 
stroke remains a devastating complication of the procedure. In the first fast-track clinical research paper, a prospective randomized evaluation of the TriGuard TM HDH embolic deflection device during transcatheter aortic valve implantation results from the DEFLECT-3 trial. Alexandra Jane Lansky and colleagues from the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, USA, addressed the latter issue by evaluating the safety, efficacy, and performance of the TriGuard TM HDH embolic deflection device, TriGuard compared with no cerebral protection in patients undergoing transcatheter aortic valve implantation, TAVI. To that end, 85 subjects undergoing TAVI at 13 centers in Europe and Israel were randomized to TriGuard protection or no protection. Subjects underwent neurologic and cognitive evaluation at baseline, pre-discharge and 30 days. Cerebral diffusion-weighted magnetic resonance imaging was performed at few days post-procedure and at 30 days. Technical success, which included complete three-vessel cerebral coverage, was achieved in 89% of cases. The primary in-hospital procedural safety endpoint of death, stroke, life-threatening or disabling bleeding, stage 2 or 3 acute kidney injury or major vascular complications, occurred in 22% of TriGuard and 31% of control subjects, which was not significant. In the per-treatment population of subjects with complete cerebral coverage, TriGuard use was associated with greater freedom from new ischemic brain lesions of 27% versus 12%, fewer neurologic deficits detected by the NIH stroke scale, 3% versus 15%, improved Montreal cognitive assessment scores, better performance on a delayed memory task at discharge, and a greater than twofold increase in recovery of normal cognitive function at 30 days. The authors conclude that TriGuard cerebral protection during TAVI is safe and complete cerebral vessel coverage was achieved in the vast majority of subjects. In this exploratory study, subjects undergoing protected TAVI had more freedom from ischemic brain lesions, fewer neurologic deficits, and improved cognitive function. The results of this trial are critically discussed in an editorial by experienced surgeon A. Peter Capitain from Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam, the Netherlands. A particularly difficult subgroup of patients with aortic stenosis is the one with a low gradient and maintained pump function of the left ventricle. Here, it is often difficult to precisely estimate aortic valve area by echo and hence to decide whether or not to proceed with TAVI or an operation. In the clinical research paper entitled Low Gradient Severe Aortic Stenosis with Preserved Ejection Fraction, Reclassification of Severity by Fusion of Doppler and Computed Tomographic Data, Jeroen J. Bax and colleagues from the Leiden University Medical Center in the Netherlands hypothesized that low gradient severe aortic stenosis with preserved left ventricular ejection fraction may be attributed to an underestimation of aortic valve area index due to the assumption of a circular shape of the left ventricular outflow tract with 2D echocardiography. Thus, they combined Doppler and multi-detector computed tomography, MDCT, data to calculate aortic valve area index. 191 patients with aortic valve area index of less than 0.6 cm2 per meter squared and an ejection fraction of more than or equal to 50% were classified according to flow and gradient into four groups, i.e. normal flow, 
high gradient low flow, high gradient normal flow, low gradient and low flow, low gradient. The outflow tract area was measured by planimetry on MDCT and combined with Doppler hemodynamics on continuity equation to obtain the fusion aortic valve area index. Patients with normal flow low gradient had significantly larger aortic valve area index and outflow tract area index compared with other groups. Although MDCT-derived outflow tract area index was comparable among groups, the fusion aortic valve area index was larger in the normal flow low gradient group. By using the fusion aortic valve area index, half of the patients with normal flow low gradient and 12% of those with low flow low gradient had to be reclassified into moderate aortic stenosis. The authors conclude that the fusion aortic valve area index may represent a more reliable method to assess such patients in the heart team. This paper is accompanied by an editorial by Peter Wienerwesser from the Swiss Heart Center at the University Hospital Bern. Patients with congenital heart disease today have a much better life expectancy, but they may develop heart failure over time. One of the most common congenital heart defects is the atrial septal defect. In their clinical research paper, secundum atrial septal defect is associated with reduced survival in adult men. Joey, Mike, Kuipers and colleagues from the Amsterdam Medical Center in the Netherlands investigated if disparity between the sexes exists in the long-term outcome of such patients. To that end, patients with secundum atrial septal defect were selected from the Dutch National Registry. Survival stratified by sex was compared to a sex-matched general population. In a total of 2,207 adult patients, 102 deaths occurred during a cumulative follow-up of 13,584 patient years. Median survival was 80 years for men and 86 years for women. Compared to the age and sex-matched general population, survival was lower for male but equal for female patients. Logistic regression analyses showed that men had a higher risk of conduction disturbances, supraventricular arrhythmias, cerebrovascular thromboembolic events, and a doubling in risk of heart failure. The authors conclude that in contrast to women, adult men with a secundum atrial septal defect have worse survival than a sex-matched general population. Male patients also have a greater risk of morbidity during adult life. Sex disparity in survival and morbidity suggest the need for a sex-specific clinical approach towards these patients. The implications of this study are also discussed in a comprehensive editorial by Michael Landsberg from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Boston Children's Hospital. In the first fast-track clinical research paper entitled Endovascular Strategy or Open Repair for Ruptured Abdominal Aortic Aneurysm, One-Year Outcomes from the Improve Randomized Trial by Janet T. Powell from Imperial College London. The authors aimed to report the longer-term outcomes following either a strategy of endovascular repair first or open repair or ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, which are necessary for both patient and clinical decision-making. The authors randomized 613 patients with the clinical diagnosis of ruptured aneurysm, 316 to an endovascular first eye strategy, if aortic morphology was suitable, and open repair if not, and 297 to open repair. 
At one year, all-cause mortality was 41% for the endovascular strategy group and 45% for the open repair group with similar re-intervention rates in both groups. The endovascular strategy group had shorter hospital stays of 17 days compared to the open repair group of 26 days. Patients surviving the rupture had higher average EQ5D utility scores with the endovascular strategy than the open repair group at 3 and 12 months, respectively. There were indications that QALYs were higher and cost lower in the endovascular first strategy to give an incremental net benefit of around £4,000. The authors conclude that an endovascular first strategy for management of ruptured aneurysms does not offer a survival benefit over one year, but offers patients faster discharge with better quality of life and is cost-effective. These results are accompanied by an editorial by Christoph Nienaber from Imperial College London in the UK. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.